Broadcasting from the Superbook Sports Studios, KTUS AM 1060, Tempe, Phoenix, and KSLX HD2, Scottsdale, Phoenix. It's time to hit the field with Extra Point, featuring Kayla Mortolaro and Bob Kemp on KDUS AM 1060. Tweet the show at KDUS AM 1060 or give us a call at 602-260-1060. The snap is back. The hold is down. You can't miss with this combination. And the Extra Point is good. Welcome in to Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060, online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. It's a Monday. It's June 5th. Bob Kemp, Caleb Mortolaro with you up until noon today as we typically do Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. We'll, of course, take your phone calls today, 602-260-1060, around 1030 and 1115. If you didn't have an opportunity to react to the Suns hiring Frank Vogel and then the news over the weekend about keeping top assistant Kevin Young as well, the NBA Finals in which the Heat have tied everything up in the series 1-1. Tori Lovello getting a contract extension with the Arizona Diamondbacks through 2024. Plenty of local and national topics for you to get involved in. 602-260-1060 is the number. But as we typically do, let's get things started with today's poll questions. And we'll start with the KDOS1060.com poll question, which was the bigger reason Miami won game two. Better effort than Denver or making shots. And the masses currently are out of their 50-50 tie with better effort at 56% of the vote, making shots at 44%. Yeah, I was a little surprised at the, you know, the brand, uh, Michael Malone, I always call him his dad's name, is Brandon, uh, Michael Malone press conference after the game that he just kind of lit into his team immediately with uh, the fact he was out. I can't even remember what the question he was asked, but he completely ignored the question and just lit into their team, his team for lack of effort. Uh, they did have a 15-point lead in this game, and you know they you know, did not start three of the four quarters well. But I, I was kind of surprised that he just kind of went off to start with uh, to start the press conference. Uh, we'll answer this question around 11.30 today. Still time for you to cast your vote, and momentarily we'll dive into uh, Game 2 from yesterday evening. On Twitter, at KDOS AM 1060, do you approve of the Suns hiring Frank Vogel? Yes, leading the way at 66.7% of the vote. No trailing at 33.3%. This is on Twitter, at KDOS AM 1060. And we covered the uh, Frank Vogel hire, among other things, uh, along with the NBA Finals, uh, in the the first uh, during the Sports Zone today in the last hour with uh, Sean Devaney of Heavy.com. And uh, yeah, the Frank Vogel thing, um, you know, think, I think it's safe to say that uh, you know, that Sean was not blown away by the Frank Vogel hiring. And uh, you can always podcast that KDOS1060.com as well as with the KDOS1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. All right, so the NBA Finals, it's all tied up 1-1. Denver lost its first game at home this postseason. Miami 1-11, Denver 108. Uh, let's start here with the lineup adjustment for the Miami Heat. Kevin Love got the start. He finished with playing 22 minutes, 2 of 9 from the floor with 6 points and 10 rebounds and uh, defensively though he, he did have some good plays defensively that's a shocker in itself uh, it's kind of a, I think I heard somebody say last night in the post game I don't remember who I listened to too many people in the post game 
uh, but uh, it was like the first defense that he's played since he's been in Miami, uh, that, uh, that which I would not disagree with. Uh, but he kind of got in the way a little bit. Um, yeah, I think he provided what they wanted. Uh, you know, I thought that Bam Adebayo was literally the best player on the floor on both ends of the floor if you combine them. Uh, he was tremendous. And uh thought that, you know, mainly uh, I think he's the reason they won the game if you had to take one individual. Bam was awesome. Uh, he had 21 points. So did Jimmy Butler. Uh, Bam was really good throughout the entire game. Jimmy had an impactful fourth quarter. Game Vincent, though, actually led the way for the Heat scoring-wise with 23 points, 4 of 6 from 3, and 8 of 12 from the field. They also had some good production from Duncan Robinson in the fourth quarter. He was great there, whether it was knockdown threes or uh, some off-the-ball dribbling to the hoop. Conversely, Firstly, though, the Cody Zeller minutes were a disaster. Not good. Uh, back to Bam. He had uh, seven of his 21 in the fourth quarter. He had nine rebounds, four assists, two blocks. God knows how many tremendous screens he set. Uh, and then adding to the Robinson thing, he got all 10 of his fourth quarter points in the fourth quarter and got him like in the first two minutes of the fourth quarter. And uh, he continues to shockingly, at least to me and I think others, yeah, effectively put the ball on the floor and score. Usually uh, his career has just been pretty much a you know, standstill jump shooter and makes those shots. But yeah, in the Boston series, he did this some, and he certainly did last night uh, for one of the, uh, of the hoops that he started the fourth quarter and uh, helped turn that fourth quarter around. For the Nuggets, it was Jokic with 41 points on 16 of 28, 11 rebounds. But the story here, just four assists. Jamal Murray, 18 points on 7 of 15, 10 assists. KCP fouled out. Jeff Green had some minutes late where he was giving uh, opportunities there to the Heat. Uh, As we just continue to kind of monitor the numbers, the story uh, in some regards was the differences between the three-point shots that were made for the Heat versus what they were had been doing in the playoffs as well as the free throw disparity so when you look at yesterday's game Miami was 17 of 35 from three Denver 11 of 28 from three and then at the foul line Miami 18 of 20 Denver 19 of 22. Yeah a couple other quick things I want to go back to Jokic for a second Uh, that's a playoff low four assists Eric Spolster was very upset uh, in the post game and he was asked whether that was kind of the plan uh, as to uh, you know, make him a shooter or score. And, uh, uh, in fact, he ended his press conference at that point. That was his last question, basically. And uh, thought it was a good question, quite frankly. I think everybody kind of wondered if that was the strategy. But he didn't want to hear any part of that. And he's usually very um, even co- even keeled, win or lose, in these press conferences. But he got pissed off last night. and just That was the, the end of the press conference at that point. Also, a couple other quick things here. I think certainly the last possession needs to be discussed. You know, they had two timeouts remaining, not just one, but two. And uh, Murray uh, basically you know, it dribbled excessively, had to change his direction because the heat forced him to do so. And it wasn't exactly, you know, I mean, I heard it was you know, a, you know, a, a good look. I really disagree with that. You know, that's not the shot that he originally wanted. He was off balance. He was fading away from the hoop. So I really strongly disagree with a lot of the people who said last night that that was a good look. 
Going back to your point about uh, Eric Spolstra in the postgame there, we have some numbers. Jonathan Von Tobel of VEASAN tweeted this out, that in three postseason losses before Sunday, Jokic averaged in those losses 42 points on 61.3% shooting from the floor. Last night, it was 41 points on 57% from the floor. So there's obviously patterns here for if you can make Jokic uh, not facilitate the ball but force him into scoring the ball more it takes everyone else out of their rhythm here and so that was the question from ESPN's Ramona Shelburne and then Spolstra cut her off and followed it up with uh, that's a ridiculous that's the untrained eye that says something like that this guy is an incredible player twice in two seasons he's been the best player on this planet you can't just say oh make him a score that's not how they play he then added um, that we have to focus on what we have to do we try to do things the hard way he requires you to do many things the hard way he has our full respect I kind of took that as uh, he didn't want to talk about it because the defense kind of changed to to really take away maybe some of those opportunities and then it also helped that guys weren't knocking down shots for the Nuggets the other thing is oddly enough they actually played more zone even when Jokic was on the floor and they did this I'll add to Von Tobel's numbers if he just covered the entire season, according to ESPN, and my apologies, I didn't fact check this, but I'm assuming they're correct. Denver is now 4-4 four and four this season, regular season slash postseason when Jokic scores 40 or more points. Interesting. Um, so there, there's something just at least numbers wise to monitor with that situation. Um, and to your point, Miami certainly did change their defensive strategy as well. Also, when you look at missed shot opportunities, Michael Porter Jr., one of six from three. And subsequently, he only played 26 minutes. And I think that that maybe had something to do with at least what Michael Malone said post game, uh, not specifically calling out Michael Porter Jr., but maybe just overall attitude wise. Uh, not really uh, kind of getting down on yourself, so he put in somebody else. Well, he sucks on defense, so if he's not scoring, you got to get him off the floor. And uh, you know, we've mentioned this a few times. He really, he's had some breakout quarters in the postseason, but really, I don't think he's had a breakout offensive game in the postseason so far. Uh, so that uh, I think needs to change if they're going to win this series. And. We'll see how, how that goes. Uh, also, it's not often when you have a team that has a 33-9 to run during a game that they lose the game. And Denver had a 33-9 to run at the end of the first quarter and started the second quarter and lost the game. One thing I will say about Jokic, I don't know if you've noticed this here, uh, that he has just such soft touch that it seems like the ball, more times than not, when it's bouncing around on the rim, it goes in. That's true. I remember when I was a young toddler, which is a hundred years ago. My dad, we had a basket in our, uh, you know, garage in our driveway in Columbus, Ohio. So we were in Columbus, Ohio. So we probably got to use it like five days a year. Uh, at least in the winter, we never used it. But whatever, we he put up a hoop for me. And uh, remember, the first thing he ever taught me was that soft touch thing. And uh, 
didn't work out nearly as well for me as it has for Jokic. <laughs> um, a couple of other things here as well. Uh, so you mentioned not calling a timeout there at the end. You could also say that they brought this up on the broadcast if whether or not Miami would just foul, forcing them right. into some free throw opportunities as opposed to letting them get the tying three off. Uh, the other thing that people had kind of talked about as well is that two key plays went in the direction of Miami. Uh, Jimmy Butler stepping out of bounds and he skipped it over to Gabe Vincent who made a three and then Bam's block that a lot of people thought should have been a goaltending call. Um, I am of the the notion here that yesterday's game, though, the refs were kind of equally calling things on either side. So, yes, those two plays certainly stood out because they came in the fourth quarter. But I think throughout the entire game, uh, there were calls that you could question either way. Yeah, I wasn't keeping score or the referees. Yeah, I could care less about those two plays. Denver had a billion opportunities to win this game. As I mentioned, you know, they had a 33 to scoring, 33 to nine scoring run. They led by 15. Uh, they have nobody to blame them themselves. And they also didn't guard in the fourth quarter. Miami scored on 15 of 19 possessions in the fourth quarter. Yeah, they came out in the first quarter dominating, and they came out in the fourth quarter dominating as well. Uh, ju- and also the third, start the third, they did. That's so true too. Three of three, three of the four quarters, they started off great. Uh, the Heat, they would uh, they become the first number eight seed to ever win an NBA Finals game on the road. Then as this series flips now 1-1 to Miami, they don't play again until Wednesday for game three. The Heat are 6-2 and two at home and the Nuggets are 3-2 and two on the road. Certainly uh, some extra rest, though, is probably helpful. Um, you could look at it from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, the Nuggets with some rest because the rotation is getting pretty short there for them and then for the heat maybe potentially getting tyler hero back and as you pointed out uh caleb martin who's been dealing with an illness yeah he has migraine problems he talked about that a little bit after the game so uh you know i've never had i've had some headache issues i've never had a migraine to, to, to that level uh but i can understand how that uh, i know people that have certainly been affected by that uh, you know, on a long-term basis, and so you know, I think those are uh, things to monitor for sure before uh, before Wednesday night. And I, I don't, I don't think Spolster was asked uh, before he left the podium early last night whether Kevin Love started because of you know Martin's migraine situation. Yeah, that's interesting because I thought Spolstra had kind of hinted at that Kevin Love wasn't going to get the start, and then obviously he did. So I wonder, to your point there, if it was because of the migraine that put him in and that adjustment wouldn't have been made otherwise. Yeah, so I'm not sure uh, what the answer to that is. And I I assume he'll be asked that. Uh, I don't think there's any media availability today, but there certainly will be Tuesday and before the game on Wednesday. There's a mandatory head coach's press conference before the game, uh, before every game. Uh, Certainly all coaches uh, are very intentional with things that they say, and certainly there are potentially messages that they deliver to the team through the media at times. Uh, Michael Malone's reaction post-game, what do you take away from just how fired up he was, uh, kind of upset with the team, and maybe trying to get them motivated for game three? 
I think that was part of it. I mean, I was really surprised that he, you know, his first question with the media, I forgot what the question was, but he completely cut off the question, which seemed to be a okay question, and he just went off on his team's effort. And uh, that was pretty much the tone of his entire press conference. Uh, certainly we'll get into a little bit more of this as we answer today's poll question later on in the program. On the other side of the break, we'll dive into the Suns. Uh, it's not official yet, but every report indicates that uh, the Suns and Frank Vogel have been inching their way toward a five-year deal. Also reports that uh, the Suns are keeping top assistant Kevin Young, making him the highest paid uh, assistant coach in the league. So we'll dive into a little bit about that uh, on the other side side of the break and of course we'll take your phone calls today 602-260-1060 around 10:30 and 11:15 602-260-1060 is the number it is the extra point though on this monday june 5th bob kemp kayla mortelaro with you right here on kdos am 1060 Radio is here for KDUS AM 1060. Check out your favorite shows and games on 100.7 KSLX HD2. right here on KDOS AM 1060. As always, follow along with us online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. Bob Kemp, Kayla Mortolaro with you up until noon today as we typically do. Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. As mentioned, heading to break. Nothing official yet from the Phoenix Suns, but all reports indicate Frank Vogel has been hired as the next Suns head coach on a five-year, $32 million deal. Reports also coming in over the weekend that Kevin Young is staying with the Suns. Woj reporting the deal will pay Young more than $2 million a year, which would make him the highest paid assistant coach. To me, this somewhat suggests here that Kevin Young has a lot of support, obviously, from Devin Booker. We know that publicly, the rest of the organization as well, but that the management team didn't like that he's never been a head coach or been there and done it, and it feels like the window is get there and do it. So along those lines, maybe they feel like they wanted to put the head coaching title into somebody who has a championship, also Vogel being known for his defensive mindset here the Suns need some players and a philosophy with some defensive intensity but you also then get to keep the offensive set of things that Booker and I assume Kevin Durant uh, gravitate toward agreed seems to be a combination of uh, you know Vogel obviously is without question a defensive first coach Uh, I think it's safe safe to say certainly uh, especially in Indiana we didn't have Anthony Davis and LeBron. That offense was a challenge, and I uh, thought he was, you know, poorly coached. Uh, he poorly coached some of his offenses in Indiana when they should have been better. Uh, I don't understand exactly why you have to give him five years. Uh, I don't think he was up for another head coaching job anywhere else. But uh, yeah, he gets a five-year deal, thirty-one or thirty-two million, depending on which. Uh, insider you believe in as far as the price goes and, and you know there's no question that young is, is certainly known 
as an offensive head coach. So I don't know if he's like a, quote, offensive coordinator. We'll see how that goes. And I'm also not real sure why he gets $2 million annually to become the highest paid assistant coach in NBA history. I, I my only thought here is uh, to show one to show him how much he means to the organization despite not getting the head coaching title, uh, and two to prevent him from going to Detroit. Oh, okay. Then you should have just kept Monty Williams. Uh, this also happens to be though the second place in a row that Frank Vogel has kind of been told what assistants will be on his staff, at least as it is right now with the one that we know about with Kevin Young. But the same thing happened for him uh, in L.A. with the Lakers. Right, and uh, of course LeBron was in charge of that. So you know, because you know, despite what he might say. He's in charge of who the head coach and pretty much everything is in Los Angeles. So that's that deal. I think this is just a lack of faith in, in Vogel at the offensive end of the floor, which uh, you know, I guess this is a kind of the mix, uh, you know, defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator type of thing in the NFL. Well, let's ask this question along your lines of like a lack of faith, per se, in offensive skill set to devise something. Um, do, do we think this year it was a limited sample size? We did get to see the playoffs, though, with Kevin Durant and Devin Booker together, uh, that the offense wasn't an issue, that it was more defensive driven. So therefore, uh, keeping that same offensive philosophy makes sense. Uh, good question. I'm not sure. As long as Aaron Gordon's not guarding Durant, um, you know, cause obviously I've made a huge difference in the Denver series. Um, I'm not 100% sure. Um, they don't have enough players on this team uh, that are good, you know, above average at both ends of the floor. And I think that the, at least uh, as the roster construction that we last saw, I just don't think that's a good mix no matter who the head coach is moving forward. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a pivotal offseason to be able to get some players, uh, as you mentioned, both ways on the floor, offensively and defensively, to certainly shore up the contributions uh, to the team. Because we're seeing you know, what uh, solid contributions are doing from your non-stars in these playoffs. Yeah, that's true. But I also really strongly disagree with this notion that, you know, there was, you know, the non-stars or complimentary players uh, play much better at home than they do on the road. Just look at last night uh, as an example. I don't just I think that that is complete crap. And I've heard this for a long time. Maybe I'm just wrong, but I just think it's completely inaccurate. Certainly last night for uh, the Nuggets that, uh, you know, Michael Porter Jr. had an off night, even KCP fouling out. Uh, he was only one for one for four, I believe it was, from the floor. So uh, certainly you're right there. Bruce Brown, though, continued to play well. Well, and I was even thinking more of the Nuggets side of things here with Gabe Vincent. Uh, yeah, he, He's had some of his best games in the playoffs this year on the road, but nobody ever wants to bring that up when they're telling me that complimentary players only play well at home i guess it's more of a a mindset issue if you ask somebody the question would you rather knock down a shot to silence a crowd or would you rather knock down a shot to get the crowd riled up 
There's, I had not thought about that angle before, so uh, you're, you're way ahead of me on that. <laughs> uh, but we'll get into a little bit more about Suns and hiring Frank Vogel, and we'll answer the question on Twitter. You can still cast your vote at KDOS AM 1060 around 1130 today. One other thing I wanted to get into here, because I think you could probably provide some uh, perspective here, is that the NBA coaches honored Rick Adelman with the Lifetime Achievement Award before yesterday's game. He's 70 six years old as a head coach in the NBA. Uh, he spent 1989 to 1994 with the Portland Trailblazers, 1995 to 97 with the Golden State Warriors, 99 to 2006 with the Sacramento Kings, 2007 to 2011 with the Houston Rockets, and 2011 to 2014 with the Minnesota Timberwolves. His career, he has amassed uh, 1,042 wins, 749 losses, and he made two NBA finals with the Trailblazers in 90 and 92. Yeah, I think he's been knocked for, you know, wrong reasons. You know, I mean, he didn't win a championship when he was at Portland, but to me that team maxed out for the most part. Was he supposed to beat the Bulls? Was he supposed to beat the Lakers when, you know, Shaq and Kobe were kind of in their heyday? And then he went to Sacramento and he really got to face Shaq and Kobe in the heyday and Went to a Game 7. Of course, that didn't go well. One of the Robert Ory made shots over the years. Sunk them in that game. But I always thought that any criticism of Adelman was just stupid uh, because I think he maxed out with uh, you know, both of the best organizations and the best, the two best chances he had. But they just – he just he, Portland and, and Sacramento both lost to better teams. I didn't realize this, though, that uh, when his time in Minnesota, he coached both Kevin Love and Kyle Lowry. I forgot he was even in Minnesota, <laughs> so you're you're way ahead of me on that, too. Uh, so certainly that was a tremendous honor. And then obviously his son, too, is on the staff with the Nuggets. So cool that he got to uh, be there for all of that. Yeah, I think the whole idea of you know, doing a – you know, kind of a, a honorary assistant coach, not assistant coach, but a, yeah, a honorary coaching award like this is a really good idea. And uh, I think the NBA also is really doing the right thing by it gets a whole lot more attention if it's in the finals. And needless to say, as you mentioned, Adelman's uh, one of his sons is on the staff in, in Denver, just kind of made it even more timely than uh, than it has been. 602-260-1060. That's the number if you'd like to chime in. Uh, Phoenix Suns, NBA Finals. We'll get into some Diamondbacks and Major League Baseball in hour number two, but you're welcome to discuss it now. 602-260-1060. We'll get to you now. Talk to you on the other side of the break. We'll also dive into, uh, I don't think this topic is going away anytime soon, but it's conference realignment. And right now, what is the Big 12 going to be doing? There's some reporting after they wrapped up their spring meetings last week. So we'll dive into that further speculation as well because we still don't know what the Pac-12 is doing with their media rights deal. So we'll get into all of that here on the other side of the break. But 602-260-1060 is the number if you'd like to join the program. It is The Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060. social information about KDUS AM 1060, try KDUS1060.com at KDUS AM 1060 on Twitter and Facebook.com slash KDUS AM 1060. 
you Extra Point here on KDOS AM 1060, online at KDOS1060.com, and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. Still time for your calls if you'd like to join the program, 602-260-1060. So, the Big 12, they wrapped up their spring meetings last week. ESPN's Heather Dinich is reporting that uh, no votes were taken on new membership, but certainly plenty of discussion was had about a variety of different scenarios. And one of the scenarios that uh, she's reporting was discussed is about adding some basketball only with Gonzaga and Yukon. So you're getting a, both spectrums of the country there. Uh, Brett Yormark, the Big 12 commissioner, said, quote, we do see the upside in basketball moving forward for all the right reasons. We think it's undervalued and there's a chance for us to double down as the number one basketball conference in America. But football is the driver and we all know that. Uh, just kind well, of... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Let me quickly add to that basketball thing. There are, remember, they're already adding Houston for next year. That starts next year. That's correct. So you look at what's transpiring in the Big 12 here shortly. Oklahoma and Texas are leaving in 2024. Coming in in 2023 is BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF. Uh, so I wanted to get your perspective on this, though, when it comes to the UConn side of things. This isn't the first report that I've heard that the Big 12 is interested in UConn. I think I probably heard this about a month or so ago um, that UConn was thrown out there. But UConn just rejoined the Big East back in 2020. And at the time of this report that I had heard about a month ago, the real sentiment here was that UConn really liked and valued uh, the rivalry matchups that they have, the connection that they have to the East Coast schools that they've built. And when they left the the Big East, they uh, missed out on those um, rivalries and connections. So leaving for the Big 12, do you think that would be something that they would really do? Geographically, it's really not much different, quite frankly, because remember last year, you know, Danny Hurley complaining about the trips to the Midwest, uh, you know, for you know the Creighton, especially Creighton, uh, and uh, and so forth. But I think it's just historically and you know just you know, nostalgia-wise, you know, they've got the history at the Big East, so there's that. You know, I assume that the football program would also be included here because Connecticut does have a football program, and Jim Morris Sr. is our uh, junior, excuse me. Jim Morris Jr. is the head coach of the UConn football program, and they actually showed a lot of progress in his first year there last season, so I think they would be also included here. Uh, in addition to this, there have been multiple reports in the last couple of weeks that uh, the Big 12 would be interested in adding Colorado which, of course, used to be when it was the Big 8 back in the day. Uh, and then the Big 10, Big 12, and it actually had 12 schools. It was, you know, it was, they were a big-time player in the Big 8. They won a national championship when they were in the Big 8. Then they were still in the Big 12, and then you know, obviously Colorado moved to the Pac-12. And that seems to be just uh, not the best of marriages for many reasons, not just football. 
yeah, so you mentioned here that uh, Colorado and the reports there that the Big 12 is still waiting for the Pac-12's media deal to be announced before they uh, make any solidifying moves because there's significant interest in, you mentioned Colorado, it sounds like a lot of the speculation is that Colorado has mutual interest in returning back to the Big 12 here. Um, so we'll find out how accurate that speculation is. Then, of course, you have uh, some of the other schools, if it's going to be Arizona, if it's going to also include ASU, if it would also include Utah. Uh, the Big 12 has basically not been shy about throwing out uh, anything and everything and seeing kind of what gains some traction. Yeah, a couple, I haven't heard anything about Arizona and ASU for the last, you know, you know, for several months. So I don't know if that's maybe I just missed that. Uh, I don't know if it was off the record or on the record, but Deion Sanders sure seems to be in favor of them getting out of the Pac-12 and going to the Big 12. Uh, so we'll continue to monitor all of that situation. Then, of course, you know the deadline for, I guess it was a self-imposed deadline, and maybe deadline is the wrong word, just the earmarked date for us to all expect something for Pac-12 media rights deals uh, continues to shift. It was spring. Now it was spring, early summer. I know technically on the calendar, I don't think we've reached summer, but we're getting pretty darn close to summer here. So it'll be interesting to see uh, you know, what, transpires with the Pac-12 because you've had several reports about whether or not ESPN is interested, not interested, what direction the Pac-12 uh, can really go. I think the most, the only accurate thing about the Pac-12 future is that something will be decided this century. Okay, <laughs> that narrows it in. Uh, so, you know, we, we continue to have a lot of discussion about, you know, the difference of where uh, conferences are going in terms of where their games are going to be held. Obviously, you have the transition with the SEC leaving CBS. You have the Big Ten uh, and, and the NBC. So you have a lot of different uh, movement taking place this year. And just also on top of that, the emergence of streaming and how much that's going to play a factor in where games can be watched, et cetera. So uh, Brian Fisher, who you've had on the program several times talking about college football, he had an interesting breakdown on conferences and college football games that are on streaming versus broadcast versus cable. And he could only go through the first three weeks of the season because that's the only weeks that have been announced so far. But uh, when it comes down to conferences here, the ACC has 11% of their games in the first three weeks on streaming, 22% on broadcast television, and 66% on cable. Then you have the Big Ten, 8% on streaming, 32% on broadcast, and 60% on cable. The Big 12 39% on streaming, 22% on broadcast, 39% on cable. The Pac-12, 3% streaming, 23% broadcast, 74% cable. And the SEC, 25% streaming, 15% broadcast, which I thought was interesting, and 60% on cable. I'll just add one thing to all this. You know, the CBS is also now involved in uh, college football uh, with the Big Ten. Oh, that's right. I, I, NBC and CBS, you're correct on that front as well. So fascinating stuff there. And for the Pac-12 numbers, with 74% of it being on cable, I wonder how much of that 74% is distributed on the Pac-12 network, which, again, doesn't get a lot of eyeballs. That would be true. 
And uh, I don't think it has anything to do with the West Coast bias crap. It's just lack of availability. At this point, yes, that problem has never been solved, and we're beyond that problem now because now it's just where is all of this going to live for the Pac-12 to uh, have the most uh, amount of money, uh, distribution, etc. So there's a lot on the horizon left for the Pac-12, certainly. We'll get into the world of golf on the other side of the break. Bob, I know you were rooting hard for Victor Hovland because I I know you know we had him for the week. So I know it was top of mind for you. Uh, You got to see some Jack Nicholas as well. Uh, So I know it was it was a a fun filled pack Sunday for you with the Memorial Tournament. Shockingly, I didn't see any of it, but uh, you'll tell me about it in the next segment. That's correct. Some golf talk is coming up on the other side of the break as we wrap up hour one of this Monday, June 5th edition of Extra Point. It's next. Tune in weekdays to the Sports Zone with Bob Kemp from 9 to 10 a.m. on KDUS AM 1060, KDUS1060.com, and with the KDUS 1060 app. up hour number one of Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060 online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports on this Monday, June 5th. Bob Kemp, Kayla Mortolaro with you. So the Memorial Golf Tournament, it's in the books. Victor Hovland, he finished birdie par birdie par to shoot a a two under par 70 and seven under for the week denny mccarthy uh he finished par 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 bogey to also shoot 70 two under for the day and seven under for the week so with victor hovland and denny mccarthy each at seven under par a playoff ensued and victor hovland ended up coming out victorious on the first playoff hole to get him his first pga tour win in the united states uh this memorial golf event was an elevated event so once again on the pga tour uh they've gone to this elevated event um there's so many of them throughout the season and the top players in the world are expected to be there that compete on the PGA Tour and it also played like a major championship as well the course really was incredibly firm uh, by the afternoon on both Saturday and Sunday the conditions were really baked out you could really take advantage of morning conditions by going low the winds maybe were a little bit calmer the greens were a little bit more receptive things were a little bit uh, I don't want to say easier because the course is challenging in and of itself but uh, certainly you had more scoring opportunities in the morning and you were kind of just hanging on for dear life in the afternoon uh, it was a very hard setup certainly guys made mistakes and you could talk about maybe whether or not those mistakes were just kind of succumbing to the pressure a little bit you could talk about whether or not those mistakes were because they knew how difficult the setup was and then the mistake got exasperated because of how challenging the setup was so really became even more penalized because of that um 
Victor, though, for him, he's really put in a lot of work on his golf game. Uh, He came out of Oklahoma State and was really always a very terrific ball striker, and he's had to work really, really hard on his short game. There's still areas of weakness there, but it's much improved. And when you look at the body of work that Victor has put together so far this season, uh, what he did in the PGA Championship uh, in that final pairing with Brooks Kepka, I thought to myself, you know, he's really putting himself right there. He, he's making those adjustments. He's he's uh, starting to kind of figure out his game a little bit. It's only going to be a matter of time before it all comes together for him. And uh, certainly this was his breakthrough moment, as I said, in an elevated event, uh, not winning. There were, The jokes were that he always wins at resort golf courses, not in the United States, but on the PGA Tour. So he gets this victory at the Memorial. Uh, So congratulations to Victor Hovland there. And also good for us because we had Victor Hovland as uh, 18 to 1. So that was that was good for us as well. The other storyline of note here from the memorial is Scotty Scheffler and just how good his ball striking continues to be and how bad the putter continues to be. Scotty Scheffler, he shoots a five under par on Sunday, catapults himself up into uh, six under for the tournament, which was just one stroke out of that playoff, and he finishes third. But these numbers are just mind-boggling. He gained 20.7 strokes gained tee to green for the week. 20.7, 20.7, just to do that in and of itself is incredibly impressive. Then at this golf course, uh, these numbers are just just insane how good he's hitting the ball. 11.8 strokes gained on approach. But here's where things got derailed for Scotty Scheffler. He lost 8.5 strokes putting. That's terrible for a guy who's world number one. Um So he's certainly going to have a lot of work cut out for him this week. The narrative continues that if he could putt, he'd be winning every single week. So he's probably going to go home. He's going to take a look at, you know, what he's doing. Maybe he's uh, going to implement a putter change. Who knows what the thought process is going to be for Scotty Scheffler as the PGA Tour turns to the RBC Canadian Open this week before the U.S. Open. So we'll certainly have... um, Some things to talk about for the RBC Canadian Open this week, but we might have just a a lighter uh, load because of uh, getting geared up for the U.S. Open. Plus, we hit Victor Hovland. We also had Shane Lowry and Siwoo Kim in the top 30 for this week. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the U.S. Open is the following week at L.A. Country Club. One other thing of note in the world of golf here, making her LPGA Tour debut was Rose Zhang. Uh, you might remember Rose Zhang as being the golfer who has just dominated uh, the collegiate world at Stanford. Uh, she won back-to-back NCAA ti- uh, titles. She certainly won heck of a golfer. She also won the Augusta National Invitational uh, for the women's just a couple of week, uh, months ago in April. Very good golfer. She outlasted Jennifer Cup. Cupcho in a playoff, and Jen- and Rose Zhang here then becomes the first player in the last 72 years to win an LPGA Tour event in her pro debut. 
That's crazy that she's done this now for the first time in 72 years. She's also the first to win a sponsor's invitation since Lydia Ko did it back in 2013. And she's the first to win an NCAA D1 title and an LPGA event in the same year, let alone two weeks apart. So one of the things and she just she was just on the Sports Center for two straight segments, in fact. Yes, she was. Uh, so plenty of yeah. attention there for Roseng. The hype surrounding her so incredibly impressive for her to go out there play her game. She too uh, lost strokes to the field putting, but uh, had a really impressive ball striking week for herself. The one thing that I will say. Uh, that I just caution everyone because I've seen the narrative so far is that uh, she's the next Tiger Woods. I understand there's synergy there because Tiger went to, to Stanford, Rose went to Stanford. Obviously, she's incredibly talented with how she just tore up the record books in college golf, same as Tiger Woods. And then she goes out there with all of the hype uh, and wins her LPGA Tour debut. Uh, but the one thing I will say is, uh, first of all, they're not the same golfers. And just let Roseng go out there and, and be Roseng. She may, uh, at the end of the day, be a Hall of Famer. She may, at the end of the day, set all sorts of records on fire. But just let her go out there and be her. Uh, I, I think the comparisons, I know we tend to do this a lot in sports, no matter what the sport. Try to make a comparison of somebody else, especially when they're a quote-unquote phenom, uh, and attach it to some other phenom. Uh, just... Just let it all play out. I, I think that that's the best that we can do for her as she uh, obviously withheld uh, the pressure of going into her, her professional debut and getting a victory. Hour number two is coming up on the other side of the break. We'll get into the Arizona Diamondbacks. They extend Tori Lovello's contract. Uh, they had a series against the Braves. And we'll also dive into the rest of Major League Baseball from the weekend as well. It is the Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060, online at KDOS1060.com, and with the KDOS 1060 app, powered by Superbook Sports. Hour number two, it's next. It's next.